Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week is Dr. Philip Carey. Uh, Dr. Carey recently wrote a book called The Meaning of Protestant Theology, Luther, Augustine, and the Gospel that Gives Us Christ. Um, and this conversation was quite a fun one for me to have with Dr. Carey, as I've been aware of his work for several years, um, using some of his research in my uh, dissertation, as well as our connection over classical Christian education, because he is the professor of philosophy at Eastern University, but he's also a scholar in residence at the Templeton Honors College, which is um, connected to uh, a program of preparing teachers in the classical Christian tradition. So Tom, Trevor, and I uh, all taught at a classical Christian school. So this is a fun conversation to kind of bring together a bunch of different strands of thought uh, for me um, and also even my own anxiety. So Dr. Carey not only has a great academic background, but he also has a bit of a pastor's heart. So he's worried about, uh, or he's uh, writing about worries that people have um, that, that come from their theology, and he's looking for resources uh, to help people in the broader theological and philosophical Christian tradition. So this conversation at times gets a little uh, deep and deep in philosophy and theology, but it's always um, geared for Dr. Carey in helping people understand their faith better. Um, so I think this is just quite a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I really enjoyed it. And uh, Dr. Carey was very generous with this time and this hour-long interview. So I've kind of teased this one in past episodes, saying that I hoped to have this conversation, and I finally was able to. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, if you have any thoughts on the conversation, please do let us know. Um, we had a, gr a nice comment from Timoteo Baladelli, uh, who uh, said that he really enjoyed our last conversation with Dr. Gavin Ortland. Um, I've had some other good engagements uh, with... Uh, other uh, author, um, other people on Facebook, so it's nice to hear those um, and get those encouragements, and that really just helps us move forward. So thank you for listening, um, and please uh, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, uh, review us. Uh, we also have a Patreon account, and all of those are um, you can find on our Facebook page. Um, so thank you for listening, um, and hope you have a good week. Um, all right. Um, well, welcome uh, to A History of Christian Theology. This week, um, I'll be talking with uh, Dr. Philip Carey, um, who is a professor of philosophy at Eastern University. Um, he also is the scholar in residence at the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University. Um, he has recently written a book uh, that I think actually I got for Christmas, um, <laughs> and I have been thinking about it uh, since then. Uh, but The Meaning of Protestant Theology, Luther, Augustine, and the Gospel That Gives Us Christ. Um, so Dr. Carey has written a lot about Augustine. So he wrote uh, sort of a trilogy uh, of works, which I had read as I was doing writing my dissertation. Um, and then this came out and I was just, you know, uh, fascinated. And uh, at first I had my questions uh, because he he has a, an interesting way of reading Augustine. And I, but I think it's really helpful, uh, especially as he puts it into conversation with Luther. Um, and, I, and I will just say, generally speaking, like as I was reading his introduction, um, I really felt like I had a, an ally and a friend in, uh, in Dr. Carey uh, because he recognizes the sort of evangelical um, anxiety, as he terms it, um, and he wrote another book with with even that uh, specifically in mind. Um, but he's also aware of um, the place of Protestantism within the great tradition and with it within this sort of broader um, Catholic and and sort of universal church in mind. And so, you know, just for me as a person who was raised evangelical, uh, did his Ph.D. with a, a Jesuit professor, um, you know, I and a Jesuit priest. Um, it was helpful for me to, to think through with Dr. Carey some of these ideas because I too would like to see some of you know my worlds brought together, um, but but also that we have something distinctive to offer. So that's really um, really the power of what what uh, Dr. Carey offers in the book uh, is this idea that that yeah Protestantism and especially and the thought of Luther um, gave something meaningful to the broader tradition, um, and and so uh, I really appreciate this book. So welcome, Dr. Carey. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Um, and so it, it, the title gives a little bit of, of where you're headed in this book. It is the gospel that gives us Christ. Um, but would you mind um, just giving a quick you know, summary of what you were trying to, uh, to do with this book and what your like, main thesis is? Right. Well, you uh, landed right at the, the center of it. Um, I, I think Luther articulates the notion that the gospel gives us Christ, which is to say 
Uh, we are united with Christ for our salvation and our rede redemption through hearing the word of Christ in the gospel, which is an external word. So the, the way we come to know God and be transformed is by hearing and believing this external word. Um, and that's, that's something that you don't have to be Lutheran to believe that, but Luther articulates it with a particular power and beauty and pungency that I really wanted to track and understand. Yes. All right. Very good. Well, and that's one one other thing. You know, we uh, before uh, we started recording, we were discussing uh, a little bit of our of the background of our backgrounds, and uh, and one of the things that makes uh, Dr. Carey an interesting uh, interlocutor for me is that you did your PhD specifically in philosophy. Um, so you have a very uh, a lucidity about the way in which you sort of analyze these figures um, that that maybe is not uh, always the case with other uh, theologians. Um, so I, I definitely uh, appreciate that. So hopefully. Um, you know, that's that's kind of one of the things that I think that this book offers is your clarity and insight um, into what how the thought actually works. And so how it works for Luther um, and in a way in which that it can it can work for us. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I tried to understand the logic of Luther's faith. I mean, sometimes Luther says nasty things about reason, quote unquote, but he does reason and he reasons a lot. And it turns out he uses philosophy when he reasons. Surprise, surprise. And it's nice to figure that out and understand how it goes. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Awesome. Well, um, I'm, I, so I sent uh, Dr. Carey a couple questions, and so we're just going to start right in with uh, the first one. So we're going to get right into the, the meat of things. Uh, so one of the things that you bring out in Augustine is that uh, he has this platonic background. Um, and I think there's been a little bit of a revival um, among theologians recently in, in, and an interest in uh, Plato and the, the sort of platonic um, idea of God and, and where that comes from, the metaphysics. Um, and you are uh, maybe pumping the brakes a little bit um, on this uh, interest and emphasis uh, in, in sort of Platonic metaphysics um, and, and specifically as it's received by Augustine. So you make a distinction between um, how Plato understands the metaphysics and then how uh, or the Platonic metaphysics and then how Augustine uh, applies that sort of epistemologically. Um, so in a sense, you want to keep some of the Platonic influence, uh, but not all. So would you mind uh, unpacking that a little bit, like how how this the metaphysics are maybe important, but the, the epistemology maybe less so? Right. So um, the Platonic tradition, which includes, broadly speaking, it includes Aristotle, but also uh, later Platonists like Plotinus, um, offer us a great deal of conceptual resources, which I want to make use of. I think the Christian tradition rightly learns a whole lot from Plato and the gang, because Plato and the gang's right about a bunch of things. Um, in particular, if we want to think of God as not a bodily, material being, uh, then Platonism is more or less indispensable. It's metaphysics of God is going to help us think about God as a non-material being. I think Holy Scripture points in that direction, but Holy Scripture is not interested in working out the conceptual details. So for the conceptual details, uh, Plato is somebody to learn from, and Plotinus, and Augustine did. The problem, in my view, is when that gets turned into a spirituality, and it gets turned into a spirituality by going from metaphysics to epistemology. Metaphysics being you know, the, the account of the being of God, what it is for, to be a non-material being. And epistemology, of, of course, is the account of not knowing God. Well, how we know God is a spiritual matter. It's a matter of, of, of our relationship to God, our spiritual practices, um, our understanding of, of what it is to be conformed to God in Christ. And at that point, I want to say, we'd better be following scripture and Plato and the gang don't have as much to say. Um, and the problem is uh, that Plato and the gang do have a spirituality. They do have deep religious insights. They do give us a spirituality that can be very attractive and has, in fact, played a, an important role in the Christian tradition. And at that point, yes, I, I want to put on the brakes and say we ought to be listening to the gospel instead. And there really is a difference. 
Well, and one of the key elements of that Platonic spirituality, and especially as it is uh, imbibed by Augustine, is the idea of seeing. Um, so seeing becomes uh, this category uh, at, that um, Augustine uses again and again, uh, that the beatific vision, as it's uh, later known, um, is, is sort of the end of the Christian life. That is our eschatological hope, is to see God. And so seeing um, and illumination, these kind of words become very important for um, for Augustine, uh, picked up broadly from Plato. And and they end up, I think, in, as you understand it, and, and I think rightly so in Augustine, they make a very internal kind of um, move. Um, and so this is something that happens inside. One sees with, the, as Augustine will say things like, one sees with the eye of the mind um, once it is cleared from sin um, and most especially from pride. Um, so for Augustine, uh, that th this is part of what you learn from scripture and from Christ as in the incarnate uh, deity in the form of a slave uh, is that it clears us of this um, uh, of this pride that allows us to see God, but it's almost entirely dependent on this notion of seeing. Um, so, so that's something though that that you think maybe is gone too far uh, with Augustine, and that's kind of where Luther comes in and says maybe we should hear. Uh, so. Could you sort of speak to this idea of why uh, the, this vision is less helpful? Right. Right. So the, the seeing that Augustine wants us to understand is not a seeing with your physical eyes. It's intellectual vision. It's seeing with your mind's eye. Um, it, it is indeed inner vision. And he'll often talk about an inward turn and looking within. But this is a looking that you don't do with your eyes. You do it with your mind. Uh, not your imagination either. So an example that he'll use, to, so just so we can get an idea of what he's talking about, he will use the example of uh, imagining uh, a geometrical figure. You can imagine a geometrical figure uh, like a, a triangle drawn on a chalkboard as you're talking about the Pythagorean theorem, and it's drawn in green, let us say, on the chalkboard. So that's that's imagination. You're, you're picturing something that you can see with your physical eyes. And Augustine says, that's not the eye of the mind. That's not intellectual vision. The vision that we need is like when you see, when you say, um, well, you're, you're thinking about the Pythagorean theorem and you're having a hard time. You don't understand it. You don't understand it. You're, you're working on stuff. And then all of a sudden you say, aha, now I see it. I see it. I get it. That's intellectual vision. And you're seeing something that is not green. It's not on a blackboard. It's never going to be seen with your physical eyes, but it's an eternal truth. Right? The Pythagorean theorem has always been true. It never began to be true. It will never cease to be true. It's eternal in the strictest sense. And the place you see it, Augustine thinks, is really in the mind of God, because that's where it originates. Everything that is unchangeably true is there in the mind of God, and that's where it comes from. And that's what you're catching a glimpse of when you say, aha, now I see it. So I think Augustine is really building a spirituality around that experience of seeing, which is not just mathematics, it's virtue, it's wisdom, it's justice, it's truth. Um, and there's a, you can see why that could be a powerful spirituality. Um, at, at the root of it, I think, is the notion that you need to see this for yourself. It's not good enough, Augustine's thinking, to just believe what you're told. If you're in a math class, right, you might start out by believing what your professor tells you and writing the, the writing it on the uh, on a notebook, but you don't understand it until you see it for yourself and you can say, "Aha! Now I see it." So, just to, to push this a little further and, and get the power of it, imagine that this "aha" experience becomes your whole way of being. It's who you are. It's what you are, and you're seeing all the truth that contains all that is immutably and eternally true for all eternity, and that's what you're seeing. And, and that's, I think, what Augustine is thinking of when he, when he gives us this notion of beatific vision, the vision of God that makes us eternally happy. He catches a glimpse of it with his mother, Monica, in Confessions Book 8, and says, oh, if that could permanently become our being, that would be, well, that's the kingdom of God for Augustine. And I disagree, <laughs> right? And, and the reason why is because I think the notion of seeing for yourself is not how we know persons. Mm. We know persons by listening. 
because persons have a right to a say about who they are. So persons, knowing persons is different from knowing mathematics. Uh, you don't just see it for yourself. Um, if, if that's how it was, it would be like you know seeing through a liar. Uh, when someone lies, you want to see through that. But someone who's trustworthy and faithful is someone whose promise you should believe, not try to see through them. And that's what Luther's thinking of with the word of God and the gospel. The gospel is a word where God says who he is. And we should let that get into our ears and into our heart and believe it. And that's how we know who God really is, because that's God telling us in person, this is who I am. Mm. I think, so, so the last point about this, I think that what Luther is doing with this epistemology of hearing corresponds to the way the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about the knowledge of God based on the word of, of the Lord, which comes into our ears, into our hearts, and changes us. And that, I think, gives us a different epistemology um, than, than Augustine gets from the Platonist tradition. Right. And I, one of my questions that, that I had uh, written out beforehand uh, draws on Rowan Williams. Um, and But but it's uh, th this idea that you were just describing uh, that, that how important listening, or uh, excuse me, how important... Um, the, the language is for Augustine. Um, and, and in fact, well, actually, in fact, it's not that it's, it's sent, you know, it is a part of what he thinks about, but ultimately what he wants to do is say that language is not actually all that useful. You need to get beyond language. And this is something he brings out in De Magistro, uh, which you actually explore more in your other books, maybe than in the meaning of Protestant theology. But I just had to ask a little bit about that because it was something that I struggled with a little bit as I was writing my dissertation, um, which is, you know, what is the point of preaching? Uh, because for Augustine in De Magistro, it seems like there's not all that much usefulness um, to to speaking because he has this sort of platonic inspired idea uh, that, that really words don't teach. Um, and it's something that you just all it does is recall something that you already know. Um, and so it sort of seems to undercut the usefulness in a way of preaching. And I think this is something you press a little bit uh, in De Magistro and it, un it sort of underlies your rejection in a way of this um, sort of, again, uh, the beatific vision and this emphasis on, on, um, on Plato. Um, you think that this is the place where um, that epistemology can go wrong. Um, so I, I, I pulled this quote out of one of uh, Dr. Will, uh, with Rowan Williams's essays where he says, Augustine is the most philosophically interesting when he is least trying to be philosophical. And, and what I, why I find that quote interesting is in the, in the De Magistro, he's trying to be philosophical, but the rest of what Augustine says seems to imply that he might have, you know, we, we might say more, more use for words than he lets on in his, uh, in his very explicit theories. Uh, so would you, would you care to respond to any of that that I get you quite right uh, and and you know maybe how you think about Augustine and his understanding of language yeah Augustine's understanding of language I think is really very different from Luther's uh, Luther Luther is is practically slain by the power of words Luther's whole life is about words and hearing words and speaking words and he thinks of words as having great power especially the word of God Augustine not so much uh, Augustine thinks uh, quite literally that we don't learn anything from words. That's what he says in De Magistro. His early philosophical dialogue uh, on the teacher is what it, how translated. And he's, the thesis is that the true teacher is not external. The true teacher does not teach us with external words and language. The true teacher is an inner teacher. It's Christ as the um, eternal wisdom of God, the eternal truth of God, but not fascinatingly, not Christ incarnate. Because Christ incarnate, you can only learn about by, by hearing about him, right? You can't believe in Christ incarnate without words any more than you could believe in George Washington if you've never heard of him, right? Because Christ incarnate is a human being. So this inner teacher is Christ in his divine being available to everybody, to every rational being. Augustine says it explicitly in the treatise on the, on the, the teacher. So I think what he's doing in the, in the treatise on the teacher or De Magistro is he's giving us a platonic account of why platonic dialogue works as a path to wisdom. Because um, this comes at the end of, a, of an early project that Augustine is developing of, of, of teaching in the liberal arts as a way to come to the knowledge of God. 
which makes perfect sense if you've read Plato's Republic and you, you the allegory of the cave, even Plato's own project of liberal arts, which is a way of coming to see the supreme good with the vision of the mind's eye. You, know, you climb out of a dark cave and you, you, with the, the intellect, you see this supreme good, which is Plato's God, really. So Augustine, I think, is giving us a very uh, articulate and subtle uh, justification for that kind of teaching and learning. And it is very philosophical. But what Williams is suggesting, I think, that uh, the stuff that he's interested in is more like what, what you get in, in Augustine's sermons, where Augustine uses words with incredible beauty and power, more power than maybe he is willing to admit. Right? Augustine's an extraordinarily powerful preacher. Um, and if you, if you were only reading Augustine's sermons, you would perhaps never guess that this is so very platonic at root. Uh, Augustine's theory about what words do is very different from the practice. At least mm. that, it, 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 on the surface, that's what it looks like. I think in the end, Augustine's theory and practice hang together. But I think Rowan Williams is trying to tease them apart a bit and say, look, the, the, the power of Augustine's words isn't explained by this theory in De Magistro. Um, in De Magistro, um, it looks like words really just can't do anything. They don't have power. They can tell you where to look, but you have to look and see for yourself. So there's that, that theme about seeing for yourself again. What an external teacher does, according to Augustine, is he, he tells you, look over there, look inward, turn inward, turn away from me because an external teacher can't teach you anything, but let my words direct your attention towards what you can see for yourself within your own mind. Um, and that's a, a powerful theory, which I think Augustine believes to the end of his days. But you can be forgiven if you think, you know, in his practice of preaching, he sometimes seems a bit more like Luther because he seems to, to use words with great power in ways that his theory doesn't really account for. Right. Well, and that and that would be sort of his own experience of hearing uh, Ambrose of Milan, right? I mean, he is moved by the words of Ambrose, um, and and that you know, and that's I, I one of the things that I brought up was a quote from from Book One and uh, of the Confessions, where Augustine talks about the importance of the ministry of the preacher. Um, so I think that's you know, it's really helpful, and one of those things that makes Augustine fascinating. If he writes over uh, five and a half million words, uh, and uh, you know, Isidore of Seville famously said that you, if you said that you've read all of Augustine, uh, you're a liar um but whether or not he's right there's so much there about uh, in augustine that you can you know build a lot of different um augustines i guess um or at least see him at work in different ways that that maybe don't always uh, at least straightforwardly come together well this is true there are a lot of augustines out there uh there's the, you know my augustine is not exactly rowan williams's augustine and which is not exactly lewis Ayres' augustine and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. um i think i get augustine right but but <laughs> but but that's an argument right because there is so much augustine and one can wonder whether his early platonic emphasis is carried through in his later practice as a christian preacher I think it is, but it turns out um, there's a lot of people who disagree with me on that one. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, let's see. Um, Carol Harrison was on my uh, committee, and um, so you know, she's very uh, believes like you do that that Augustine is actually more consistent than um, than some people want to make him out to be, like maybe Peter Brown or others. Yep. We're going to take a quick break from our conversation with Dr. Carey to tell you a little bit about the upperroom.org, one of our new sponsors here on the podcast, which will help us continue to bring you uh, interviews and helpful in, um, content from the history of Christian theology. Um, there are some daily comforts that just make you grateful and feel more grounded in life, petting the dog, hitting that snooze button, and of course, that first cup of coffee. These are things that you count on every day to help you get where you want to go. Things like the Upper Room Daily Devotional Guide. You can count on the Upper Room for daily inspiration, daily community, and daily prayer. It is the only daily devotional magazine written by readers, ordinary people, people who have encountered God in daily situations. The Upper Room is here for you every day through your email, a custom app, or a printed magazine. Enjoy a free 30-day trial of our email or app service by visiting Upper, the upperroom.org slash welcome. That is 
U-P-P-E-R-R-O-O-M dot O-R-G slash W-E-L-C-O-M-E upperroom.org slash welcome to get your first 30 days free. It is interdenominational and written by readers and it has 80 years of history and 5 million readers around the world. So this is a well-established organization. So I encourage you to go check them out and get their emails and devotional guides from their website. And now back to our conversation with Dr. Carey. Um, well, let's move. Uh, so we're about, you know, halfway through here. Um, I wanted to get into what part of what makes the book so. Co- so the book is compelling to me as a person who loves Augustine uh, because of your engagement with Augustine. Uh, but but it's also compelling to me as a person who grew up with some of the um, anxieties that you say co- have come out of um, this sort of Augustinian inward turn. And one of the things that's so stark and and I think exactly right um, is how you talk about what a Agu- uh, salvation is for Augustine and whether or not we actually sort of make it all the way to the end. And this can be a really difficult thing for those of us who um, are coming from a sort of more modern um, evangelical perspective. When we go back and try to read the patristics, we sometimes don't even realize that we're conflating some of our own ideas with theirs. Um, so uh, this actually isn't one of my questions, but I, I hope it's uh, you don't mind teasing out a little bit uh, how you under- like how Augustine understands salvation and then why that creates certain anxieties in Luther. Um, and then launches you sort of into the second half of your work. Oh boy. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's, let's think of three stages here. Let's think of uh, Augustine, actually maybe four. Augustine, Augustinian medieval theology, then Luther, and then uh, the Calvinist and Reformed tradition. Yeah. Start with Augustine. Augustine thinks that uh, our goal is to see it for ourselves, to say, aha, I see it when what you're seeing is God as truth. But that's a long journey, it turns out, because um, our minds are not pure enough. Right? Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God, says Jesus. And Augustine grabs onto that and says, yeah, and we need to purify, purify our hearts. And that's a long process. There's a long journey to get to the vision of God. That journey is going to follow the path of Christ. Christ is our way to God. He's the way, he's the truth. As truth, he's God. As as the way, he's this human example, and and we follow him. The problem is, of course, that we're on the road the whole time. We don't arrive uh, in this life. Augustine says very explicitly, we are not yet saved. He does not think we are ever saved in this life. We are saved in hope, he says, but not yet in reality. And it's a big contrast, which is crucial for the next thousand years. Saved in hope, because that's that's the hope we're given in baptism, but not yet in reality, because that doesn't happen until we have eternal life and we're saved from all sin and, and we'll never fall into sin again. And that doesn't happen in this life. So we're on the road. Augustine thinks that this road is, is a road of prayer and love, and he's not deeply anxious about this because he thinks that when you pray for, for God's grace, God will, will give you grace. You pray in faith, you get grace. It's a, it's a regular thing. Think of monks at prayer in, in a monastery who, who receive this grace of delight and love in God. That's how it's supposed to go. Now fast forward to, I don't know, uh, late in the 15th century when a young man named Martin Luther is growing up and everybody is anxious. They're anxious because so long as you're still on the road, you're not perfect. So long as you're still on the road, you are still a sinner. Um, now, you, you pray for forgiveness, you, you go to confession, and you confess your sins. But the danger is that maybe some of your sins um, are mortal sins. Right. Um, not just the daily sins that we pray for, you know, when we say, forgive us our trespasses, which we should pray every day. And, and we should expect that we have little sins to, to, to deal with every day. But the mortal sins are called mortal because they take away the hope of eternal life that you get in baptism. And that means that if you die in a state of mortal sin, you go straight to hell. And people are terrified uh, in, in Luther's day. Young Luther himself Back when he was a law student, um, before he ever ever became a priest or a theologian, he was out in the field walking back to law school after a a break, and he was out in a a thunderstorm. And 
he, you know, a thunderstorm is terrifying because not only could it kill you the next moment, but the next moment after that, you're in hell for eternity, eternally tortured. So he prays, Saint Anne, help me, I'll become a monk. As in, if you give me just a little bit of time so that I can make sure that I don't have any mortal sins, then Saint Anne, I'll become a monk and I'll dedicate my life to the service of the church. Um, but please don't let me go to hell because of this thunderbolt that's coming next. So that's the kind of anxiety he has. Um, but then that changes with the gospel. With gospel, um, it really begins fascinatingly with the, um, with the sacrament of penance, where um, a pastor is supposed to say to you, in the name of Christ, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the word of absolution. It's modeled on the word of baptism. It's founded on the promise of Christ. And that's what Luther gloms onto and clings to for salvation. And his whole salvation rests on trusting in the promise of Christ. Um, Christ promised that whatever you uh, loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So if someone says, I loose you from your sins, which is what absolution is in, in Latin, if someone says, I loose you or absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's like Christ himself telling you that your sins are forgiven. Yes, now you don't have to, to, to pray to St. Anne. Now you don't have to worry that the next thunderbolt is going to send you straight to hell. You have Jesus Christ himself promising you forgiveness of sins. Hang on to that. But here's the tricky bit. Luther also, like Augustine, thinks we're not saved yet. Every day we need to keep clinging to that word. We should be certain that it gives us salvation in Christ. But what we can't be certain of is that we're going to be believers uh, 10 years from now. You can make a decision for Christ today, and then 10 years from now you give up your faith. That happens. It's called apostasy. It happens all the time. Um, and Luther thinks that you, you really just can't know um, that you're going to be a faithful Christian the day you die. You've got to keep hanging on to the promise. So Luther and Augustine on that. Both of them think you can't know in advance that you're going to persevere in faith to the end of your days. How could you possibly know that? You'd have to know, I don't know, that you were predestined to, uh, <laughs> right? This is why predestination for Calvin is good doctrine. Calvinists who know they're Calvin, they, they like this doctrine because it's the only way you could possibly rationally believe that you are already saved for eternity, right? If you're already saved for eternity, you are predestined for salvation. How, how else could God guarantee that you're going to persevere in faith to the end? So Calvin and the Reformed tradition want to say we're already saved. Um, but how could you know that? Right? You can't know in advance that you're going to persevere in faith unless there's something called true saving faith, which if you know you have it, you know you'll persevere. Um, and Calvin actually makes that distinction. He says there's this temporary faith, uh, which, which doesn't last for your whole lifetime, but real saving faith is guaranteed to last. And that's what you, you know, the Calvinist doctrine of perseverance of the saints, which is once saved, always saved. If you have the true saving faith, you know you'll persevere, which means you know you're predestined for salvation. But that also has its anxieties. <laughs> there's, no, there's no avoiding anxiety because we live in a world of sin and death. So every tradition has its own anxieties, but they place them in a, in a different way. Catholics have anxieties about whether they're in a state of mortal sin. Luther has anxieties about whether there's a hidden God who has not predestined him for salvation. Calvin's anxiety, or the anxiety of the Calvinist tradition, is how do I know that the faith I have now is really true saving faith and not the temporary kind of faith? Right? How can I know for sure that this is really saving faith? Um, well, so you're going to have anxiety one way or another. And one way to understand the difference between people like Augustine on the one hand and Luther on the other hand and Calvin on the third hand is <laughs> they have different anxieties. Their theology shapes our, our lives in different ways so that, that anxiety is placed in a different place. The, the flip side of this is, to be fair, is that every one of these traditions addresses the, 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 the anxiety of that particular tradition. If you're a Catholic and you worry about mortal sin, you go to confession. If you're a Lutheran and you're worried about whether God is secretly your enemy, you hang on to the gospel of Christ. And if you're a Calvinist and uh, are worried whether you have true saving faith, there's a whole Calvinist tradition of pastoral care 
uh, focused on finding assurance of salvation. Um, so, you know, choose, choose your, your, your theology and you'll be choosing your particular anxiety and the particular kind of pastoral care that's addressed to it. Wow, that was very helpful. I'm sorry I uh, I launched you into such a, a you know a long-winded question there, but that was really helpful for me. Uh, I had sort of, as I was reading the book, I'd sort of forgotten. Uh, I was trying to uh, place Luther um, as more with Augustine or more with Calvin in terms of how he understands the the salvation. Well, as, as Augustine would say it, you're saved in hope, but not in reality. And I, I, I had actually lumped Luther more in with Calvin, thinking that he was a little bit more on this uh, idea that you could have a knowledge of the of your salvation in the end before. And part, I guess, that, that to him, part, partly what uh, you emphasize in the book and one of the things that um, is sort of interesting and, and a little different from the way that, that I was raised in a more Baptist context, uh, incidentally, uh, is baptism. <laughs> um, is like for Luther, you look back to your baptism and that's, that's part of what you emphasize there. You have to trust the promises of Christ. So if you were baptized and the words were given to you, you are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you trust that promise, um, then then that's really the that's really all the the only question is 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 Christ faithful, um, and that's what you that's what you're trusting in is the actual faithfulness of Christ, not whether or not you believe that to be true. Is that, did I get that right? Right. The idea is you don't put faith in faith; you put faith in God's word. Right, and, and everyone really wants to do that, but I think Luther is more successful at, at, at sussing that out and making that make sense. Right, um, everything depends on whether Christ is telling us the truth, and then we also need to identify what He's telling us. And Luther thinks that when you're baptized, that's Jesus Christ using the mouth of a minister to tell you that you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means you have died in Christ, and you've been raised to newness of life in Christ, and you have the promise of Christ, it's, it's kind of like a wedding vow, right? Um, you might be sometimes unfaithful to your wedding vow. When that happens, you return to, to the original promise, right? You repent, you return, but you don't have to redo the wedding, right? It's not as if you have to remarry someone after you've committed adultery. You return in repentance to the person against whom you've sinned, and you start living by the promise once again. Likewise, when you sin, um, what, what you don't have to do is sort of get rebaptized. Return to that initial baptism, and you, you you hang on to that promise once again, because Christ is like a bridegroom who is always willing to take back his sinful bride, and the promise is always there, and you can always hang on to it. Uh, now, at that moment, Luther does have a, a moment that he's he's like Calvin in that the promise is absolutely certain. Um, uh, and this is really important for Luther. Um, when you hang on to the promise of Christ, you should be certain that he will save you. Um, so that, that emphasis, emphasis on certainty is something he and Calvin have in common. It's just, for Luther, you got you got to keep on hanging on to that promise every day. Uh, in the midst of your uncertainties, you got to cling to the word. Whereas Calvin really does think that you can know in advance that you're going to be saved, that you'll persevere in faith until the end. And that Luther, I think, doesn't really give you that. Yeah, well, that 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 makes sense. And so, you know, one of the things that um, that I began to think about as I was reading through this is what does so Luther has this phrase uh, the, that uh, a lot of people know that at the same time. Um, uh, Simul justus et peccator, at the same time, um, just and sinner. Um, and it, it sort of undercuts some of the uh, habituation and virtue uh, that's pretty important in, in, uh, in Aristotle and in Aquinas. Um, and, you know, it seemed, I, and I was just actually just saw a quote the other day from, from Luther where he talks about like, this is the enemy of grace, this whole sort of tradition of habituation and virtue. So that might explain one of my questions, which is, um, can uh, Luther uh, have both? Can there be both some kind of habituation and virtue and the truth of at the same time sinner um, and uh, justify, uh, just? Um, right. And that's sort of a hard, it's a hard thing for someone who came out of like a more, uh, like, you know, the classical Christian school world loves to talk about virtues, but one wonders if that's even helpful anymore, if we are actually living in light of Luther. Right. Let me answer that question in two stages, um, because it, this is a big question for, for Lutheran theology. 
And um, I, I'm going to give you my, my sort of Luther heresy, and then I'll give you um, a, 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 a positive view here. My Luther heresy is something where I'm going to say something that most Lutherans would disagree with. But I think it's, it's plain in Luther's text that most Lutherans are wrong about Luther on this point. And this is um, about uh, the notion of justification as a process. Hmm. Many Lutherans will look at this thing, simul justus et peccator, uh, where Luther says, we are at the same time just and sinners. Um, that's, that's what that Latin phrase means. And many Lutherans will look at that and say, that means that, that we don't really make any progress. Justification is not a process. We're always sinners. We don't really make any progress. Now, when you look at how that phrase shows up in Luther's early works, he uses it to explain what's happening in the process of justification. It's precisely the state we are in when we're in the middle of a process. Now, fascinatingly, he uses Aristotle to explain that. And, and Aristotle is going to show up three times in this answer that I give you right now. <laughs> the first time is Aristotle's theory of process. In a process, you're always in between the beginning and the end. Think of when you're building a house. That's a process. And in, when you're in the middle of the process, um, it's not completed. The Latin word for that is imperfectus, right? Perfect is Latin for completed. So the house is imperfect. It's not perfected. It's not completed. It's not a house yet. And yet, what is it you're building? You're building a house. So you can point at the house and say, that's the house I'm building. Oh, but it's not a house yet. It's a house and not a house. That's exactly what happens with a half-built house. That's the way it goes with any half-completed process. You can describe it in terms of the beginning, which, which is, you know, it's not a house yet, or the end. It's a house I'm building, right? You can describe it in both ways. Um, and Aristotle's saying, yeah, that's the in-between character of any process toward a goal. Luther is saying quite clearly that justification is just like that. It's like a process of, well, it's a process of going from sin to righteousness. As long as we're in the middle of it, we're still sinners, but we're righteous by faith alone. We're, we're, we have justification by faith alone, but we're still sinners because, for one thing, we still don't fully believe. We're, we're in the process of becoming more and more righteous by faith alone, um, but we're still sinners by our unbelief. We're in the middle. That's the process. Okay. Now. What Luther, so here's the second stage. Luther emphatically disagrees with Aristotle's notion of habituation as an account of how we become righteous before God. He hates that. He'll say it over and over again. Aristotle, that rancid philosopher, he just insert, insults Aristotle up and down. After using Aristotle's theory of, of process, when he gets to Aristotle's theory of habituation, he says, oh, well, that's okay for human righteousness, but for justification before God, for becoming righteous before God. Habituation is, is useless. That's, that would be justification by good works. Right? Um, we do get habituated. Right? Augustine, uh, Luther does not deny we're, we're habituated. This, this is common sense. We develop habits. Of course we do. But does that form us in righteousness that, that God can look at us and say, there is a righteous person who is virtuous and just and acceptable to me by habituation? Nonsense, says Luther. Absolute nonsense. You cannot become just. In, by the way, just and righteous are the same word in, in German and in Latin and in Greek. Just and righteous. You can't become that way in God's sight by practice or habituation or anything you do. Aristotle's an idiot, right? Of course, you can apply him to ordinary human virtues, you know, civic justice and so on. Sure, sure. Aristotle's fine for that, but not for justification before God. So. How does this process of justification work if it's not habituation? There's a third Aristotelian theory, right? So we've talked about Aristotle on process, Aristotle on habituation and virtue, but there's another Aristotelian theory um, that Augustine, I'm sorry, Luther will use, which is Aristotle on perception. Hmm. Aristotle's theory of perception, the form of what you perceive enters your mind. So you look at a, a tree, and the, the, the wooden tree is not in your mind, but the form of the tree is in your mind. Right? Luther will use this to talk about how we perceive Christ by the hearing of faith. Hearing is a form of perception. So think of how music works when you hear it. Right? The form of a favorite song is in your heart. The same way it's on a CD or in a radio waves and a radio. Right? The very same form. 
right? Not just an idea about the music, but the form itself is there in your heart because you can sing it. You know it by heart. That form has formed your heart so that you know it and, and have it, right? You have the music itself. You have the favorite song itself. It's there in your heart. Now imagine that Jesus Christ is a favorite song. He's the music that shapes our souls so that we are formed by the form of Christ. That's how Luther will talk about it. He picks this up from Paul in Galatians uh, chapter 4, verse 19, uh, when Christ is formed in us. So it's, it's as if Christ is a favorite song who forms our hearts in the music of God's very being and, and, and reshapes us in the image of the righteousness of God and the justice of God and the truth of God and the wisdom of God, all of which is, is present in Christ incarnate forming our hearts like a favorite song. And so that's that's where Aristotle's theory of perception, where the form that's in the, the thing gets in our gets in our hearts, uh, Luther uses that theory. And that's how we make progress. Mm. It's like better and better at the music of, of singing Christ's song. Um, and not incidentally, Luther writes music and he, and he loves music and he's a musician. Uh, that's how we, be, we make progress in justification. That, that's helpful. I, and I, I'm going to switch slightly to thinking about sort of applications of some of this work. And in preparation uh, for the interview, I had read your book and was thinking a little bit about what I would ask you. And uh, in, in our, at the church that we went to on Sunday, uh, it was a Presbyterian church, and they used a sort of Calvinist syllogism, um, like you talked about at the end of your book, where, uh, so after we confessed our sins, the, the, the pastor said something like, if you are a Christian and you confess your sins, um, you are forgiven. And you talk a lot about that the sort of um, in, in the Calvinist mold, um, that if is a really big if. And the great anxiety that a lot of people have when they sit in this kind of in that kind of a context and that kind of a liturgy is the question of if. Well, I don't know. How do I know about that if? And and you talked about the importance of pastoral care in Calvin. So maybe my question would be something like: So Luther is going to have a little bit more of a is going to have a different sacramentology, but a different way of understanding how the liturgy, how what what a priest says to the sinner. Um, in the congregation is um, is more powerful in that it's not really an if, it's a command that one might do something is how you uh, explained it in the book. So could you talk a little bit about like the um, how Luther understands like that po the power of the word for the pastor uh, and and in the liturgy and how that is um, is a sort of a balm of a an anxious conscience? Right. So um, in 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 a Lutheran liturgy, um, many Lutheran liturgies begin with uh, confession and absolution, and, and the word of absolution is not presented conditionally with an if statement. Uh, it simply said, you know, as an uh, ordained minister of the word, I declare to you the entire forgiveness of your sins uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of absolution that you get. And of course, you're supposed to believe it, um, and it's precisely by believing it that you apply it to your heart. Um, but it doesn't say, oh, if you believe, you're forgiven, because then you have to first believe that you believe before you can believe that you're forgiven. And, and that's the kind of anxiety that Luther doesn't want. Um, Luther does not want to be looking at his heart ever if he has to, right? because if you look at your heart and find out to, you know, to find out whether you really believe, you might discover that you're full of doubts. And that makes it very difficult to believe the word of absolution. Whereas for Luther, um, the word of absolution does not say, if you believe, your sins are forgiven. It says, you know, your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and that means it would be sin not to believe it. Not only do you have the right to believe that your sins are forgiven and that Christ is your Savior, you have the obligation because God commands you to believe his word. So you have no right to think of yourself as a sinner that God hates. You have no right to believe that. You're called God a liar if you think that you're a sinner that God wants to damn. Um, and that's that builds you up in faith in a very different way from Calvinist pastoral care. You don't ask whether you really truly believe it. You ask whether God is lying to you. And if God is not lying to you, then you darn well better believe that he's your savior because that's what he said. Right? Um, and I find that myself much, much more um, edifying and it, it encourages me and it comforts me and, and it's a way to build up people in the faith when they experience their own faith as weak 
It's not about your faith. It's about whether Christ is telling you the truth. And that's tied to the sacramentology, as you say, because in a sacrament, um, someone can say you and mean me. Right? A sacrament is, a, is tied to words spoken at a particular time in a particular place so that the pronoun you can, can mean me, as in I absolve you and the minister saying that to the whole congregation uh, in the name of Christ, and that you includes me. So that I, I, have, I don't have to ask, oh, how do I apply it to my life? Do I really believe it? If I really believe it, then I can say that I'm forgiven. That, that's irrelevant. So, and here's, the, the, I guess, the deep point. If you don't think that the sacramental word addresses you in Christ's name, then you're going to have to figure out how to tell whether the word of forgiveness really applies to you. And the way you tell is by telling whether you really believe and are really a Christian. Whereas in the Lutheran view, the way you tell is whether it's Christ saying you and meaning me. And, and, and that's ha that happens in every sacrament. Yeah. Yeah, that's very helpful. And, and as I understand it, uh, you worship in an Anglican context. So that fits a little bit more naturally uh, as there is this confession and absolution. This is a regular part of a more formal uh, liturgy. So for those people who come, I mean, and on the one hand, like, you know, as I finished your book, I was like, okay, so if I think Luther's right, um, you know, if do I do I have to find a Lutheran church uh, to have this kind of uh, emphasis? Um, like, do you imagine that this kind of word can be uh, this or this kind of uh, uh, idea about the power of Christ pro uh, this idea about the power of the um, of the promise can be applied in a low church context or are we still sort of um, dependent on on a church with a little bit of a higher sacramentology and a little more regular liturgy where that word from where you could trust that that word is from Christ Right. Um, well, yeah, the, the logic of Luther's faith really is a sacramental logic, where the word is spoken at a particular time, particular place, can say you and means me. Um, on the other hand, Luther does think that the whole gospel story, not just the promise and not just the sacraments, but the whole gospel story is a way of, of God giving us Christ. So it is possible to receive Christ through the preaching of the gospel, where someone's simply telling you the story about who Jesus is. Um, now, a good preacher, I think, will get get that notion of the notion that it, it's for you, it's for me. Like, you know, for unto us a child is born, says Isaiah. Now, that's the gospel, right? The gospel is there in the Old Testament in Isaiah. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And someone who loves the gospel and gets the gospel the way Luther does will preach that with gusto and say, unto you, you sitting here in the pews in the church, this son is given. Unto you. This child is born. He's born for you and for your sake and for your salvation. Um, and you don't have to be Lutheran to do that. Um, you don't even have to have a good liturgy to do that. But it helps, right? It really helps to have a good liturgy. Um, all the ancient liturgies, the wonderful thing about them is they don't, do, they don't spend much time telling you what to do and how to be a good Christian. They spend all of their time virtually on Christ. Right? There's a little bit on the Ten Commandments and stuff in some of the liturgies, but mostly it's it's telling us how God gives us Christ. Um, the, the Greek Orthodox tradition is really quite good on this. this. Is why quite a number of Protestants become Greek Orthodox because they're they're just starving to hear that Christ is their Savior, as opposed to hearing, "Oh, here's what you do to get saved. You make a decision for Jesus. Eh, you make a decision for Jesus, and then tomorrow you make a decision against Jesus. Right? Decisions don't save us. Christ saves us. Um, and Luther, by the way, you know, hates the notion of free will. Thinks that decisions for Christ can't do any good at all. You know, of course you can make decisions for Christ, but you also make decisions against Him. It's called sin. Um, your decisions aren't what you're going to trust. It's going to be the Word of God, and the Word of God gives you Christ in every every moment of the story. Right? From Isaiah to to Luke to Matthew, and someone who Hmm. Someone who sees that and hears that and rejoices at it, like, you know, like hearing the music, right? They're getting the music and they, a preacher who hears that has this wonderful privilege of comforting the anxious by, by reassuring them. It's really true. Christ died for you, right? For you in particular, he died. He shed his blood for you and you can trust that because he promised, um, and you, you don't have to be Lutheran to do that, um, but if you, if you have the liturgy in your ears, I think you're more likely to preach that way. 
Um, so I think in low church contexts, um, what will happen is you'll get some preachers who really get it and some of the hymns, right? There are some hymns that really get it. Um, but it really helps having liturgy because not every preacher gets it. Um, and you can go to lots of churches where the preacher doesn't get it about giving people Christ. Right? They, they don't quite understand that. That's what, that's what a preacher can do. A preacher is authorized to give people God incarnate. Not every preacher gets that, but the liturgy does. Um, all of the old liturgies, they, they get that. They, they, that's what they're doing, and it's really quite lovely. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, so we're we're bumping up right on an hour. Um, I mean, we've been recording for about an hour. We started a couple minutes late. I had sort of one other question that uh, I was just sort of thinking about as we sat here. Um, do you have time for one more? Sure. Um, I was just thinking um, about the fact that like when I, as I said, when I read your book, I said, you know, this was the anxiety that I had growing up as sort of an evangelical Protestant. Like, you know, did I really, really believe and did I really believe it the one time? And, you know, you, you as you say, as Luther says, you become focused on your own heart um, rather than on Christ. Um, and Luther doesn't want you to do that. But I was wondering, like, you know, could we think about like in, in light of that, like what are the uh, what are the other anxieties that Luther? and sort of this Lutheran emphasis produce. Um, so presumably my anxieties are because of sort of the, uh, you know, basically American evangelicalism is fairly downstream of um, reformed Calvinism, whether or not they know it. Um, a lot of their, you know, ideas come from that. So, um, so th let's say that that sort of um, evangelicalism is downstream of Calvinism. What are the anxieties that Lutheranism <laughs> can produce or what other kind of sort of problems are are produced in a lutheran context and and you know i don't want to just go straight to germany but like you know are there other things that like yeah that so luther in a it's, it's sort of an interesting idea how you present the book it's sort of like hey um i know y'all are some of you guys you know are downstream of these other anxieties and luther is your solution um but then you just think well if we're going to have to go back 500 years how you know how do we uh, how is that a solution for a problem that has come about later? And then what uh, are there other things that will come from it? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Um, Luther clearly had his anxieties. He even had this label for them. He called them Anfechtung, um, German for assaults or attacks. Um, he would wake up in the middle of the night um, with you know nasty thoughts running in his head saying, you know, you're a sinner. God hates you. You don't really believe. Come on, don't, don't lie to me. You know, and and uh, Luther would, would would identify those thoughts as, as as the devil tempting him and say, "Go away, devil! You know, Christ baptized me. Uh, I'm a Christian because I because I'm baptized, right? If you ask Luther, are you born again? He'll say, "Yes, I'm baptized. That 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 makes me born again. That makes me a Christian. Devil, go away! You don't have a right to tell me that I'm not a Christian." Um, but he had that fight all the time. You know, like every night it seems in in some of his his years, um, and the. Theologically, because he doesn't believe in this kind of eternal security, um, he does have this worry about what you could call the the, the hidden God, the Deus absconditus, you know, the God of predestination. Uh, it could be that God has not predestined him to persevere in faith to the end. He has faith today, but who knows whether he'll have faith the, the day he dies. You would have to know you're predestined to know that you're going to be a Christian at the end of your life. And Luther says... Don't go, don't go bothering about predestination, right? You try to do that and it will drive you crazy. It will, it will, you know, it'll ruin your faith. So don't think about the God of predestination. Just hang on to the gospel. But what ends up happening is that every time Luther is seriously confronted with his own sin and unbelief, he can worry about whether, you know, whether he's going to abandon the faith, whether God is going to abandon him. Uh, and then he has to keep on hanging on to the truth of Christ's promise. So the reason why I like and I think Luther's anxiety is the right anxiety to have, is that the cure for it is to ask, is Christ telling me the truth? Is God's word truthful? Can I trust it? Right. And it or, or is, you know, can I, can I say, let God be true and every man a liar? And, and even myself, am I a liar? Christ is telling me the truth. Yes, that's the right question to ask. As opposed to, do I have true saving faith? That question is enough to, to drive me crazy. I, I, I think that's just uh, you know, a, a terrible question to be wrestling with. I'd rather be wrestling with the question, is God telling me the truth? Uh, I like that one better. Um, on the other hand, 
uh, second part of, of an answer to your question, we have a different set of anxieties, most of us, than the 16th century. Um, by the time we are done wrestling with Luther, really the question is not so much, you know, is, is God going to, to send me to hell? For some people, that's still a deep question. For many people in our day and age, that's not the, the deep question. Um, the question is, is, is there a God who cares about us? Um, Philip Melanchthon said that's, that, that was his big question. Is there a God who cares for us? Well, there's a God who gave us his own son and wants us to receive him through the gospel. Um, and that, I think, gives us um, an answer to a different set of anxieties. But it's the same basic structure that Luther has in this notion that the gospel gives us Christ. That key teaching, I think, is the cure to a whole bunch of anxieties. It's not going to make anxieties go away because we still live in a world a world of sin and death and suffering. But it gives us the right thing to hang on to, which is the promise of God in Jesus Christ. I think that's about as good a place as any to leave the conversation. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Carey. This has been uh, it was a pleasure reading your book and a pleasure chatting with you uh, for the past hour or so. And I'm sure uh, that it'll be beneficial for my listeners as well. Well, thank you. It's been fun talking. Uh, uh, thank you for having me.